Hey, hey, folks, welcome to the show that punches you in the face with information, but in a good way. My name is Mark Atobri, owner and director of Enterprise Fitness, and this is the Enterprise Fitness Podcast. I am once again dusting off the old podcasts from the Maximus Mark Show back in the day that content was evergreen, so I'm very proud to relaunch them and bring them back to you. This interview is with Art Devaney, who wrote The Primal Diet. Great guy, great conversation. Uh, we head down a few different paths here, whether it be about Paleolithic uh, diets and also about, I suppose, uh, the food industry as well we discussed. But this has got a lot of great insights. Hope you enjoy. If you like this podcast, do check us out and leave a review Google us on iTunes, Enterprise Fitness Podcast, or check out our SoundCloud account. If you, if you go straight to SoundCloud, whether you're an Android user or an Apple user, um, you'll be able to stream all of our great podcasts if you subscribe to us via SoundCloud. If you're an Apple user, why not just jump on the podcast app and uh, search Enterprise Fitness for more great shows like this. Now, as always, I'd love to hear from you. What do you like? What don't you like? Have you been enjoying the re-release of the uh, Maximus Mark podcast show? If you have, drop us a line, leave us a review, hit us up on Facebook or Instagram. I'll speak to you on the other side. Hey folks, it's Maximus Mark and welcome to the show that punches you in the face with information, but in a good way. It's Maximus Radio and today I'm super duper psyched for today's show. It's what I would call a cracker of an episode. We've all heard of the paleo nutrition movement while today's guest is one of the kings and original thinkers of the whole paleo movement. Today's guest is Dr. Art Devaney. Art graduated from Montebello High School in 1955 and signed to play professional baseball for the Hollywood Stars. He was one of the very few pro baseballers at the time to actually lift weights and now universal practice, which led scouts to give him the nickname of Superman. Well, that nickname actually stuck and recently the Times of London called Art Superman's slightly fitter granddad. What an awesome nickname. Dr. Uh, Dr. Artavani went to earn his PhD in economics at UCLA and to become a very respected scientist who's known all over the world for his articles and books. He's listed in the Who's Who America and the Who's Who in the World and is the author of the, the acclaimed Hollywood Economics. A lifelong student of metabolism and fitness, Art has lived as a paleo athlete for some 30 years and is called the patriarch of the paleo movement. He has blogged on the topic since 1990 and continues to blog on the subject on his evolutionary fitness blog at www.arthurdevaney.com. He's the author of The New Evolution Diet, which you can purchase from Amazon. It is my absolute pleasure that I welcome today Dr. Art Devaney to the show. Welcome, Art. How are you going today? Uh, It's going very well, Mark, and thanks for having me on the show. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, the first question that we have, um, it's kind of the, the question that we always start with, how did you become the patriarch of the paleo movement? I mean, you were an economics professor, you know, through your, I guess, university life. How did you really get into the, the paleo lifestyle? Uh, well, you become a patriarch by merely being old. <laughs> but uh, actually, I was into health and fitness far before I became an economist. Um, I was into weightlifting by the age of uh, 14, started with a 90-pound weight set in my parents' garage, and uh, did a little Olympic lifting and uh, competitive, uh, one competitive bodybuilding contest that my, the owner of my gym pushed me into, 
And uh, then, of course, I decided I didn't like professional. I, I did sign to play professional baseball, but I didn't care that much for that life. I really was a professor even then. Mm. In fact, they called me not only Superman in those days because I was the only guy who lifted weights in in professional sports, perhaps, to my knowledge at least. And uh, I had uh, horn-rimmed glasses and looked a rather like Clark Kent. Uh, All righty. <laughs> Uh, the old Superman shows. Uh, but the thing is, economics and metabolism are essentially the same thing. They're both about allocating scarce resources to competing ends. And in the case of human metabolism, every cell is an independent agent that's only cooperating to sustain life through some kind of complex feedback loops and uh, the dance of life is uh, one that's completely controlled by decentralized processes with each cell trying to maximize its own nutrients and its own DNA. Uh, somehow or other, that whole complicated process is sustained in his life very far from equilibrium, as Prigogin said. And economics is exactly the study of that kind of process, decentralized allocation processes. So actually, my economics equipped me extremely well to understand. But the real turn was when my, my uh, young son, my two-year-old son, developed type 1 diabetes uh, when I was at the University of Chicago for a visit. Now, type 1 diabetes, of course, is an, in, is an interruption of the insulin secretion process from the pancreas. And uh, I, as soon as that happened, I went right down to the University of Chicago library and just bought all the books I could find on metabolism and diabetes and so forth. And so I plunged into the study of metabolism out of necessity right. uh, many, many years ago. Right. Okay. So um, I, guess, I guess can you just kind of set up the, the frame for the listeners? Is um, Can you tell me how we actually lived 40,000 years ago? Now, I know that you make more reference to 40,000 years ago opposed to 10,000 years ago um, before industrial farming. You just kind of want to set it up and get the, the scene in the listeners' minds. Well, yes. Uh, remember, we uh, – well, I don't know if you know this, but we went through – humans went through a, a genetic bottleneck about 70,000 years ago. That was when there was this massive eruption – we're in the depths of the Ice Age, and there's a massive eruption of a volcano in uh, Indonesia, Philippines, actually, and uh, the temperatures plunged about 70,000 years ago. And from that period until about 40 or 50, maybe really about 30,000 years ago, there were just a handful of humans even alive. It's estimated that there may have been from two to 8,000 humans left they were living through not only the depths of the ice age, but through essentially a volcanic winter on top of that. So during that time, this is a period of time when modern humans emerged. Uh, they actually emerged maybe 70,000 years ago, right during that critical period. And in 40,000 years ago, we start to see truly complex uh, human thought. It's left in, in the art and the symbolism that we see 30-some-odd 30, thousand years ago, we see the, the magnificent cave art that still really can't be topped. And you see jewelry and human decoration and burial and social organization. So it's clear that something happened to allow humans to survive during that 
almost nuclear winter, if I can use a, a bad phrase for it. Uh, and it had to be the use of uh, symbolism and cooperation. It, in addition to that, the, the brain developed prodigiously uh, right around that time, beginning about 100,000 years ago, but peaking probably 50 to 32,000 years ago. Uh, and the reason for that is we were pushed, pushed to the seashores by the intense cold and foraging along the seashores. And by the way, you, you see evidence of seafood exploitation uh, about 185,000 years ago on the southern tip of Africa. And even before that, you see that in the Rift Valley of Africa where modern humans were born, and all humans were born, and, and they're the prototypes, you see uh, exploitation of uh, freshwater streams and lakes. The Rift Valley is full of uh, lakes from the, the folding of the earth, from uh, the fact that India and Africa are colliding and there are lots of, and, and pulling apart in different places. And so right. there are a lot of rifts and deep valleys there. So we, we lived on seafood for a very substantial, even crocodile, by the way, right. for a substantial period of time. And that allowed the, the, the polyunsaturated fatty acids that are essential for the construction of the modern, very large, metabolically active human brain. So it's a critical time. Plus, it's a, the title of one of my favorite Rock Hill Welsh movies. <laughs> <laughs> righty, righty. So um, I've also read other things like different cultures who didn't have as much saturated fat and um, didn't have the resources in their diets just simply weren't as smart. Um, I remember someone referencing something about the Kenyans. They they didn't develop the, the bow and arrow, and um, some people have, have correlated it to the saturated fats in their diets. Can you provide any comments with, on that one? Um, yes, um, I think they would have had far fewer fatty acids than people living along seashores. But what did happen was, uh, but there were there were many migrations in and out of Africa, as we know now, and uh, the seashore and, and freshwater sources definitely provided. Uh, probably about half the calories that uh, humans ate 32,000 years ago. In fact, they know that from looking at the dentition, the teeth and bones of uh, Cro-Magnon humans who were found. They were higher on the nitrogen chain, which means they were eating meat and seafood, even than the wolf. In, yeah. in, in fact, they were pure stone-cold carnivores uh, when you include, in carnivory, you include uh, the flesh of uh, of sea uh, and, and the freshwater fish. So the atlatl, I don't know where that was uh, created, but that was the precursor to the bow and arrow. And that was the throwing stick with a sort of a, a, a dart-like spear that really completely transformed human hunting technology and became the basis for humans uh, killing off many of the megafauna, many of the large animals that couldn't breed fast enough given their size relative to the rate at which humans could uh, kill and eat them. But anyway, free fatty acids, a book by Crawford and Marsh, for example, uh, The Evolution of Human Nutrition, I think is something to that effect is a title I cited in my book. They, they, they do credit uh, the availability of uh, the polyunsaturated uh, fats, particularly the omega-3 and 6 fats and others of long-chain fatty acids, with... Uh, you know, the evolution of modern human cognitive ability and brain size. 
and also uh, cooking coincided with that. Uh, Richard Rangman has written this, this book on the importance of fire, uh, something like Fire is in the title. He's a professor at Harvard, and he, he credits uh, the development of uh, cooking, which allows us to trade stomach tissue for brain tissue. So we develop smaller stomach because stomachs, which is metabolically active tissue equivalent to brain. By the way, right. it turns out that the stomach is part of your brain. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you probably know that, and uh, that's why when you when you feel it in your gut, you really do. You have brain. You've got a lot of brain tissue down there in your gut. Yeah. Anyway, uh, by making the the stomach smaller through the use of cooking, you're basically using the external environment to pre-process food, and so that tissue can be traded for uh, more brain mass up in the uh, up in the cranium. Um, so cooking was uh, a very uh, important um, uh, feature there, in addition to the availability of uh, fresh water and, uh, and, and seafoods. Let, let me ask you on that. I had um, a couple of months ago uh, a Jonas Vanderplant and um, another guy by the name of Josh, I can't pronounce his last name, Trin, Trinavelli, I think it is. Um, and we spoke about a lot about raw food. And a Jonas particularly has told me that he's, he's lived outdoors for extended periods of time. And, you know, he's, he's definitely in the school of thought that raw food is superior and that, I guess, uh, you know, Ancestrally speaking, we, we did eat more raw food, but then there was that point where we developed fire and we, we started to cook the meat. So I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, number one, what's your thoughts on raw meats? And then number two, what's your thoughts on raw vegetables? Okay, well, um, raw meat is a lot harder to process. And I don't think Rangman would agree that eating raw meat would have been a basis for the development of modern humans. Certainly it was the basis for life among all predators, and humans are way up on the predatory chain from that point of view. But here we are, we live in this modern world, and the modern world is full of pathogens and meat processing. As long as you eat, you know, meats that are grown on, on free range and are properly cared for, uh, if you can tolerate raw meat, why not uh, why not eat it? But for example, sashimi and uh, other uh, Japanese raw foods, I simply avoid now. I I don't trust the oceans and the handling of food in rest, modern restaurants with who knows who's cooking or handling the mm. food these days. So I think we have to also realize that we have drug resistant toxins and pathogens living today that would not have been able to live in ancient times. And we have to respect uh, the lethality of these uh, toxins. And so I, I cook virtually everything. And I never eat hamburger, of course, because hamburger, the surface is ground into the interior of the meat. So the pathogen is taken deep into the meat where it can really breed. And so you mean like mincemeat? You never have any mincemeat or anything like that? Mincemeat, hamburger, yeah. uh, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll sometimes sausage, uh, but I cook it very thoroughly. Mm. So in raw vegetables, I eat a lot of raw vegetables in my salads, but, again, they're, they're a little bit difficult to process and uh, 
uh, utilized. So you have to do it a bit sparingly. I think it really convinces me that our our foods largely were were cooked uh, to a significant degree. Yeah. By the way, the campfire was the place where people gathered. There was safety there. There was almost always a campfire available to uh, ancient humans. Yeah, and Even though we, you and I go out there and we think we could never build a campfire, <laughs> they can build one with <laughs> no yeah. trouble at all. Yeah, um, just, on, just on that, before we move on from the, um, the raw food issue, a lot of people talk about raw food. They they say uh, there's a lot more enzymes um, in raw meat, especially, and in, the, in that, that's probably one of the most popular arguments uh, with the, the raw food issue. Um, do you have any thoughts, I guess, on the enzymes being available, and when you cook the food, the enzymes get destroyed? Is is that false? <clears throat> or? Um, yes, but the proteins get broken down because enzymes are just proteins. So you're talking about the degradation of of proteins when you talk about uh, what cooking does, and that makes them more bioavailable to a significant degree. Um, I don't have a problem with cooking. I mean, if people want to eat raw, I more power to them. Mm. But uh, I, I really, I'm an agnostic on this point. Yeah. I don't get religious about these kinds of uh, these kinds of things. Yeah. Good answer. Uh, many of my listeners, you know, train very hard, and straight after the training. They're sucking down protein shakes, uh, like you know, as you said before, like a religious belief that they they have to get the protein straight after training. What's your thoughts on protein powders and the whole "we need protein immediately after training"? Oh my! Well, this is all based on this fictitious notion that there's a window of opportunity yeah. to absorb. <laughs> now, what does that window mean? It means that. There is a period of insulin sensitivity following an intense workout. The period of insulin sensitivity is shut down as soon as you start eating uh, carbohydrate-laden energy protein drinks. Protein shuts uh, causes insulin to be released, and so insulin sensitivity collapses. Carbohydrate causes insulin sensitivity to collapse. And it also shuts down the production of uh, growth hormone and leptin, both things that mobilize energy to build new tissues and to uh, fuel your movement uh, and make you burn fat. So you basically shut down fat burning in the post-exercise period. And if you train hard like I do and probably you do, Mm. you're looking for uh, an intense post-exercise excess respiration period, that is where you're breathing more and using replenishing your ATP in your cells by consuming extra oxygen during that uh, time interval. Well, anytime you take these protein drinks, you, you close the window. It's not like the window is open for a fixed period of time. Now, let's consider how much you do absorb. Suppose you take a big bolus of uh, protein and carbohydrate right after uh, training. Well, the window shuts pretty quickly, so the post-exercise period that you spent all this time and energy trying to create is abbreviated. If, on the other hand, you just eat maybe like I do an hour after you've worked out, you've allowed an hour for uh, fat burning to take place and for leptin and growth hormone to do its role, but you've also extended the period of insulin sensitivity. In other words, the window stays open longer. 
And over a long period of time, there's really no difference between the mm. amount of protein you absorb. If you consume it right after the workout or you consume it over an extended window of time. In fact, the window's open for 24 hours if you eat moderately yeah. following uh, a workout. What, what would you eat after a workout? Well, I just eat what I would ordinarily eat. I always work out hungry because mm. you don't want to move unless you're hungry. I mean, hunger makes you feel like you need to move. When you're hungry, you're restless. When you're well-fed, you're lazy and you sit down, you're the lazy overeater. You mm. you consume. And, well, just think about this research a friend of mine says, and, and it's well-known in the literature, you cannot make these caged rats or mice exercise unless you keep them hungry. If you feed them too well, they'll sit on the treadmill and just not move on <laughs> the treadmill. Right. One guy had a mouse that it would it would sit there and the the fur got sort of burnt off its behind because it wouldn't get up and run while yeah. the treadmill was turning. <laughs> right. So, uh, in fact, they have to keep the uh, the mice about eighteen to twenty percent below, you know, the the amount of calories they would ordinarily need uh, in order to give them the motivation to. Uh, to move. And that's a primal trigger, isn't it? Because um, that's how we, you know, we had to get up and hunt our food. That's exactly right. Hunger says we better go find some food. Our brain and our whole metabolism is geared to, we shift to fat burning because that's a long lasting fuel that we carry tons of in our bodies. We don't need energy in order to go work out. We have thousands of calories mm. uh, stored in our liver, in our muscles, in the glycogen in both those places, and in our, our fat stores. Even the amino acids in our muscles can be used to fuel um, movement if, uh, if need be. The, the human body runs on, you know, a variety of, of fuels, even though our primary intake sources are carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. We can run on lactate, ketones, and uh, glucose. Yeah, absolutely. Are you familiar with the work of um, Dr. Mario Di Pasquale? Yes, yes, I yeah. know. He, in fact, he's big on the window thing too. Yeah, he's yeah. The window for longer. Yeah, exactly. It just, just reminded me of what you were saying um, when mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Mar Mario was uh, talking about um, how you shut it off, and he kind of relates it to premature ejaculation with um, taking the... <laughs> the carbohydrates too early you're shutting off the window too early and the effectiveness mm -hmm. of, of eating and the, the insulin sensitivity can be prolonged for a much greater period of time but yeah so that, that's really interesting um you, you just touched on it briefly before i've heard you say this before in, in different podcasts but um eating before training it does so it alters gene expression negatively as well is that right it's very true um right it's not only metabolic genes such as the, the, the genes that uh, determine the fate of the fuels inside your body and how the cell uses uh, nutrients, but also your mitochondria, which are the primary sources of ATP production within the cells. Um, well, look, gene expression is maximized, and research shows this pretty clearly, in a, in a restricted carbohydrate setting. When you take carbohydrate, you alter the, the metabolism, and you also alter how um, you, you shift from a process which is called autophagy, that is self-eating. When you work out when you're hungry, 
your body, your cells actually consume the damaged proteins inside your cells and recycle them as fresh new structures. So every workout tears tears muscle protein, right? Tears actin mm. and uh, and myosin. And uh, what what's going to happen to those damaged uh, tissues? Well, they're going to be degraded by autophagy, this process of internal consumption of damaged proteins, and they get recycled as fresh protein. So you're making, you're laying down new cell tissue, new healthy cell tissue at a much higher rate if you train empty and, you know, hungry. Uh, if, you, if, if you, the minute you have any carbohydrate, like if you drink or eat one of these energy bars before you go work out, and I see guys doing that all the time. Yeah. Oh, I need some energy to work out. Yeah. Wait a minute. You, first of all, you're not going to burn fat now. Secondly, you're going to completely shut down autophagy because it only operates when insulin is virtually zero. Yeah. And you're going to damage proteins inside your cells, which is how you make them grow. You damage the muscle, and then it comes back stronger and bigger. And so you shut both those processes down. That's, so, it, it's, it's really quite dumb. It, it, sells, it, sells, it sells supplements. But, yeah, definitely. Yeah. One of the things I just wanted to get before we move on, so the ideal training time would be, you know, as soon as you wake up, say with, you wake up at sunrise and train, what, an hour to half hour uh, after that? Um, I train just about any time I feel like it because life would have been an adventure in the Paleolithic. Yeah. And we didn't have routinized uh, activity patterns. They would have varied seasonally. Uh, they would have varied according to the uh, you know the cold and the, and the heat and uh, the migration patterns of animals and uh, um, just the host of whether you were going to fish that day or you're going to go try to find some large game or whether you're following reindeer moving across the globe. You're following herds migrating. So there's just a, what I do is I train according to what I call the power law, which is this notion of uh, fractal physiology. Um, humans and all living creatures don't live in a permanent state of a sort of homeostasis mm. where everything is the same all the time. Variation is, in fact, what makes us alive. What, that's what our brains are for, is to adapt to variations in the environment that, you know, less complex animals are not capable of doing. Um, and so I, I have this sort of power law training, which means that I, I work out at random intervals and at not, not completely random, not like flipping a coin, but um, oh, yeah. about every third day I go a little bit hungry and I work out twice a week, kind of hard in the gym with weights, half an hour, no more. And then uh, I'll go do sprinting, and I'll play a little tennis, and I'll just enjoy the outdoors and take walks and whatever, ride my motorcycle or, uh, you know, whatever. All that fun stuff. All the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. Really, it's supposed to be play. Life life is supposed to be playful and enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. And the, the other question I wanted to ask before, just for the listeners, when you say um, you know, don't have carbs before training, are you also including things like sweet potato um, with, with that category as well? Well, work out hungry. Whatever you've eaten, you, you should train so hard that you're on the verge of nausea. And if mm. you've got food in your stomach, you, you're going to just 
burn out earlier. Yeah, for sure. Studying both economics and nutrition, I'm sure you've looked at this question that arises often when touting the, uh, the paleo lifestyle for the masses. And that question is, we can't feed the world on a paleo diet. There just isn't enough space on the planet. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Well, it assumes its conclusion. That's a preposterous statement, and it's not even a question. It's just a proposition that Mm. was probably dreamed up by some vegan. Um, First of all, the number of calories available to humans per capita is at the highest rate has ever been in all of human history. Secondly, virtually all massive starvations occur in agricultural uh, cultures who are highly dependent upon monoculture, a single kind of crop or just a couple of crops. Mm. And agriculture encourages, even necessitates, uh, one or two or three crops, Uh, whereas our ancestors ate from 300 to more, 300 and more wild plants and multiple animal sources and and, and seafood sources and foods. Uh, For example, in China uh, or in India, uh, there's dependence, and in all the world, there's a dependence on primarily the bulk of our calories come from like four starchy crops. Now, each one of those is vulnerable to new pests. Think of the Irish potato famine, the starvations in, in China, uh, and the list goes on and on. Now, if you were, suppose you took, you had a loincloth and a sharp stick, and you're out looking for food or energy. Where are the calories? <laughs> in the meat. <laughs> yeah. where, where is the carbohydrate? Yeah. There is none. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. protein and fat, and uh, we throw away so much of our fat, or we avoid fat so religiously, not religiously, but so assiduously, that we're wasting a lot of the calories that are, that are out there and that would have uh, fueled our activities and our movement. So it's really a bogus, it's not even a question. Now, insofar as technology, um, most starvation is one, as I said, in agricultural societies, not hunter-gatherer societies, but two, technology is is easily capable of supplying the foods that are, in fact, has already done so. It's not the number of calories available in the world today or even in the future if we move toward a more uh, plant and animal-based um, uh, agriculture. It is the distribution of uh, food. So the starvations we see are always episodic and highly concentrated in the places where they have really bad government. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, China, Soviet Union, um, Rwanda, Ethiopia, and so forth, all the recent starvations are the results of uh, a poor distribution of foods and and uh, and wars and uh, really really bad government like the Soviet and Chinese collectivizations of agriculture. Is, is Twenty five million people died in China, you know, during yeah. the the green the you know the agricultural revolution there. Is this because of trying to efforts to globalize the food supply? It should be localized. I. I think we should we should have both operating very clearly. Um, first of all, if you had secure property rights around the world, farmers would take care of themselves. You wouldn't have a problem. And all these pastoralists who find their lands intruded upon and get pushed out of areas, 
or who have whose crops are seized by like like Chavez is doing in Venezuela now. They seize the crops or in Cuba. No wonder Cuba has so few calories produced per capita. Uh, there's no incentive to do so. No wonder many countries can't feed themselves because the collectivized agriculture. Look what's happened in uh, um, where um, um, Mugabe has uh, taken over agriculture. I mean, it's just collapsed. So most of the starvation we see is not from the, the sources that uh, whoever thought this question up uh, are pointing to. By the way, more animals are killed by modern agriculture because you create this monoculture and you, uh, you kill the habitat of uh, all the wild creatures that live there when you turn it into a, a vast wheat field. And guess what comes in behind? It's the vermin. Mm. The vermin have learned to follow humans and to exploit the agricultural crops that we that we grow. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I had Leah Keith on um, quite a while back. She wrote the Vegetarian Myth, and we um, yeah we spoke about this very topic. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, very very good, very very enlightening um, interview. Very yeah. very good. Yeah. Um, science and modern nutrition have developed sophisticated food intolerance screening tests and have emphasized, you know, there's a few books that have emphasized the need to rotate foods, let's say every three to five days, depending on the author. Uh, my understanding that the way we lived 40,000 years ago, we didn't have the luxury of rotating foods or rotating food groups. How important do you think it is to rotate foods? Well, I think food variety is very crucial because, you know, every plant is has only so many nutrients in it, for example, amino, amino acids in particular, or magnesium, very two very, very crucial uh, nutrients. And as I said, our ancestors uh, lived on up to 300 plants, uh, various wild plants, so they rotated constantly. Um, and it's well known that uh, people who eat a wider variety in their, in their diet tend to have better longevity. Well, I don't know how well known it is, but there are studies that support that, that point of view. So uh, now rotation can be thought of in several ways. You can rotate over a season, as our ancestors surely would have done based on the availability of different crops. Uh, the Eskimo can't eat berries except at a certain time of the year. Otherwise, they're dependent upon the uh, animal and seafood uh, sources. They rotate, but they rotate in sort of a seasonal uh, way. Uh, we, we tend to think of rotation as you know, sort of changing every day. We sort of reduced the complex, complicated metric of life that would have been true uh, back in ancestral times down to sort of a, a, a do-it-every-day kind of mentality, a highly routinized sort of chronic uh, um, way to, to think about uh, about living. So as long as you vary your activities and vary your food intake, whether you do it like 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 you mentioned, uh, you might you might eat chicken for a week because you bought you got a deal on chicken. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and another week you might eat seafood. Uh, that's that's variation. If you integrate the variation over a longer period of time, rather than just a day, like a year, um, we all have a fairly um, well, not all. Uh, some people eat nothing but the same thing day after day after day all year long because in the modern society you can do it. In ancestral times it would have been completely impossible to 
eat a, you know, even a Twinkie every day. I mean, you can eat a Twinkie every day now, but you could never get <laughs> a comparable source of carbohydrate. <laughs> yeah, every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every day. Yeah, that was true. Only, only you'd really get those high-refined um, carbohydrates when you stumbled across a, a beehive, and that wasn't every day. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. So and just, by the way, they, they, ancient humans loved honey. They would take great risks to try to capture honey. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I can understand why. Um, so, yeah, just to catch the leader up, uh, the, the listener up to speed, yeah, what, what I do is I order um, a quarter of a cow um, or order seven kilos of chicken or, you know, seven kilos of kangaroo and I, I just go through basically one animal at a time until mm-hmm. it's gone and then I, I move on to the next animal. Um, again, my thinking is that it, it more closely resembles and mimics a, a modern caveman, so to speak. So um, that's what we'll, we're talking about there, yeah. I really like that. Um, I don't quite do it that way, but because it, anyway, I just don't. But uh, I would. I've been in, very intrigued to try a kangaroo. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to come over to Australia. Yeah, definitely. It's it's really good, really good. <laughs> the only thing with kangaroos, you, you you can't overcook it because it does get very tough. So you need to need to have it probably a bit more on the the rare side. Because um, if you do mm-hmm. overcook it, it's one of those meats. But yeah, it's, it really is a is a great meat. Really, really good. Kind of like venison, then, because same thing's true of venison. If you yeah. overcook it, it's tough as leather. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, once a primal man has developed the tools to bring down a larger game, this this question's actually from a friend of mine. He wanted me to ask. Uh, once the primal man developed the tools to bring down larger game, he would then engage in feasting. Uh, the beast had to be eaten and obviously couldn't be refrigerated. Um, they would all sit around and eat and eat and eat and gorge themselves. Uh, seems like the human body has an inherent capacity for overeating. So the question is, do you think it's not only okay to overeat, but on occasion to our advantage, providing it's the right foods? I, I certainly don't disagree with that description of the, of the pattern. Although in, in the northern environments, had you killed the mammoth, it, it would have been frozen and you could keep it around for quite a long period of time. Mm. Um, same thing's true of, you know, a, a, an animal that, that freezes in, in the north. Uh, you can exploit the food as you see fit over a, a fairly long period of time. But it is true, I think, uh, there was just meat and protein were scarce always, 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 always. And so there was a lot of sharing, and meat became basically a commodity for bringing groups together around the around the fire and sharing and building relationships, which were so crucial to survival during the depths of the ice ages. You had the, the sheer knowledge and activity, and uh, you know, um, helping one another. Uh, and uh, so, meat sharing, I think, probably is a big element of what makes us human. Um, now, gorging, of course, we can we can uh, readily gorge, and that's the idea that you don't want to let calories go to waste because you never know when you're going to find another one. So I think that is definitely a survival advantage. Um, it used to be thought that there was a so-called thrifty gene, that some people could store foods more readily than others, but that that's been discarded now, and it's clearly uh, mm-hmm. bogus because if you store food far more effectively than someone else, that means you don't use energy effectively. So you're not an energetic person. Yeah. You're fat. And how are you going to survive? 
That yeah. really makes no sense. That was that was I think one of the theories around the um, people born around the Great Depression. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's probably true now in India where we have an explosion of type two diabetes. Um, the people who are developing it are were born at low birth weight because their mother was under nutritional stress. So how does the fetus cope with that? It becomes resistant to the action of uh, insulin um, because the mother is resistant to insulin too. The, the fetus and the mother are competing for nutrients. Here's economics again. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so in later years when the infant grows up and it finally has uh, adequate calories available, uh, that promotes further insulin resistance and it's a pathway to type 2 diabetes. So Indians and, and Chinese who are susceptible to this, by the way, diabetes among Chinese living here in the United States is enormously high for the same reason. Low birth weight, insulin resistant as infants, and then that insulin resistance is carried forward into later life when calories are abundant and they eat all this darn rice. Yeah. Uh, and so this is this is sarcopenic obesity is what this is called. They're skinny fat, as we call them yeah. on my website. Mm. And their their body composition is is not within the Paleolithic range, and their metabolism goes goes away. For sure, for sure. Um, now I answer this question a lot, and um, I, I kind of want to ask you the question so the listeners uh, get, it, get it from you as well. Um, do you think it's advantageous to eat five to six regular meals a day like most fitness magazines promote? It's uh, completely ludicrous. Um, <laughs> it's suicide, too, because <clears throat> remember, there has to be what they call a postprandial state, that is, a period of time after the meal are you never burn fat. Mm. <laughs> exactly. So only when you sleep do you burn fat for a person like that. And so that kind of frequency keeps your insulin, uh, and Barry Sears promoted this idea too, keep your insulin in range in the, range in the zone, but it keeps it chronically elevated. So the basal rate of insulin release is always relatively high, and it never falls to a low. So it's like having a little loud noise irritating you all the time. Mm, yeah. Your metabolism turns off to it. And right. so you actually defeat your insulin sensitivity by doing this. The best thing to do is to, is to have low insulin. One, you won't age at the same rate. My insulin's at the bottom of the range the lab can measure, my fasting insulin. But when I eat, my insulin jumps up, those nutrients go right where they're needed, and then the insulin goes back to virtually nothing again. Mm. So I'm not turning on my aging pathways. The insulin IGF-1 pathway is the aging pathway. The more you activate it, the more rapidly you age. The less resistant to stress you are, the more damaged proteins and, uh, and accumulated toxic fats you have inside your body. Remember, the fat inside your body has a, has a shelf life, and the longer it stays on you, the older your fat cells are, the more toxic they are because they become rancid. Right. That's and they produce free radicals, which age you and damage you, um, and damage your DNA and cellular tissue. So it, it's stupid. Uh, Unless you have... 
a bad a bad liver or something, a bad kidney. Yeah. Um, what, what about when people say, um, this is another question that I get a lot, is, um, you know, what about the metabolism? Don't we need to eat five meals a day to keep our metabolism burning? <laughs> it'll it'll wake up when you eat. What, what's the point? <laughs> you never switch to fat burning if yeah. you always have food coming down the pike. Yeah. You want to be primarily a fat burner. That's the safest fuel, a stable fuel. It's the densest fuel uh, to burn. When you burn carbohydrate, you damage your mitochondria. They produce lots and lots of free radicals. They um, therefore are damaged by the, the free radicals that you're producing. The result is they commit cell suicide and the density of your mitochondria over a long period of time will decline and their function will decline. And once your mitochondria start to go away, um, you are in an energy crisis. So what happens is the body becomes fatter in order to supply more fatty, free fatty acids to the, uh, to the mitochondria. So somebody who has low mitochondrial density and function you can guarantee is going to be fat because that's the adjustment that body has to make in order to supply extra fuel to the, the weak little pitiful mitochondria that it has. Mm. So it's all, most of the things that people talk about are completely backwards. I, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I guess the, the other mentality, and I, I try and tell as many people as possible, obviously all my clients, listeners, you know, one of the questions I always get asked is how many times a day should I eat? And I always uh, retort with how many times a day do you want to eat? Um, and that's, uh, yeah, I, I think that's really at the core of it. People need to kind of get out of this. Um, you know, I need to be told by someone else how many times a day I need to eat. You know, you need to start really listening to your appetite, listening to your hunger. When you get hunger, that's going to tell you, hey, you need to move. Let's, let's eat something. Um, and, you know, not reaching for a bag of, uh, you know, chips or something like that. Eating a proper meal is, is really what it's about. If you eat real food, your hunger and you and you exercise in a, in a fun but somewhat intense way, your appetite will completely guide your your uh, your energy requirements and what you eat. I eat usually two meals a day, sometimes four, um, sometimes one, sometimes none. Yeah. Remember in medieval England, and a lot of you people in Australia came there from. <laughs> <laughs> the convicts. <laughs> Make sure you mind uh, your bags when you come over right. here. <laughs> the, the the norm was two meals a day. Yeah, exactly. About right. ten o'clock, you know, they'd eat something after they'd gone out to the fields, and then around four o'clock they'd get home because dark was coming soon. And uh, so, two meals a day was pretty much uh, three meals a day, and and more than that is a completely modern uh, notion. It's only possible in a society like ours where we have food, you know, right down the hall anytime you want it or right across the street or yeah. what have you, in a refrigerator. I actually, it's uh, impossible. So I was going to say, I actually spoke to, um, I think her name's Lynn Oliver. Um, she, she's the editor for the Food Timeline, and I asked her where the whole concept of three meals a day came from, and she actually got back to me and she said it was from 18, the earliest in print from three square meals a day was, I think it was 1857, and it was from the British Navy, and what they actually used to do is serve... Um, 
uh, their meals. They had three meals a day, but they actually served it on square plates. Um, so that was the kind of the, the where, where it came from. But yeah, she said exactly the same thing. I love it. It, it used to be it used to be um, getting it, not meals, but it used to be um, talked about as getting a bite to eat or getting something to eat because people just didn't have the money to you know sit down and, and eat three meals a day. It just was not possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that so, so that's where three square meals a day comes from. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's there's been a lot said about intermittent fasting. It's a topic that I actually haven't covered at all in previous shows. What's your thoughts mm-hmm. on intermittent fasting? Well, I didn't invent it, but I was one of the very earliest proponents uh, of intermittent fasting. Um, I did it. I began intermittent fasting. It's a fractal or chaotic pattern of eating that coincides with my fractal or chaotic pattern of exercise. And by the way, you can measure your fractal variation uh, and get an assessment of your health. If your health is uh, not so good, you're going to find there's very little fractal. Your, Your heart beats more like a metronome then it beats like a natural living heart, which has a wide range of beat intervals and scales that it operates on. Mm. Yes, uh, so uh, you can read uh, you read a little bit about fractal physiology in my uh, in my book, and I have a few posts on my website about it as well. So this goes back to Vanderbro and the notion of a fractal dimension, and um, mm. it turns out that human beings are these de- decentralized, self-organized systems. And fractal variation is an essential part of how we are, our metabolism um, and our physiology is uh, is really organized. Well, I happen to have um, built a very complicated model of the Paleolithic energy life uh, energy landscape, and I found that about a third of the time our uh, our hunter gatherer ancestors were pretty damn hungry. So, and it was unpredictable. You know, you, you kill a large animal, you feast for a few days, and then you go out and you hope you find something. You might go a week without hitting anything but a few berries and a, a, a few slugs. <laughs> yeah. Eat. So um, that's how I came into it. And then I, I heard a talk at the Calorie Restriction Society where I was a, a guest and gave a talk myself. A doctor at Stanford had actually tested um, uh, intermittent fasting. And uh, it had, you can eat the same number of calories, let's say, um, in in a two-day period, eating every other day or eating, you know, splitting the calories and eating the same amount each day. Guess who will have the better metabolism and the better body composition? The one who fasts. The, the random eater, yeah. the one who eats uh, intermittently. Yeah. It has a profound effect on our metabolism and our our body composition. Every experiment that's been done on intermittent fasting, by the way, intermittent fasting doesn't mean you restrict the total calories you eat. It just means you vary the intake over, say, a week or or, or every other day or every third day. My my pattern is to typically undereat on every, sort of on an average of every third day. Right. Um, but I don't undereat in any real sense of the word. I probably average 4,000 calories a day. Yeah. Um, but that's a that's not 
again, it's not a chronic day after day after day after day. Your metabolism just can't handle that. You're far more healthy and have better body composition if you have that. Take that same pattern and break it into 5,000 one day, 2,000 another day, 3,000 another, and, and so forth. And your appetite, as you said, if once you've, your metabolism has been adjusted and you come into a sort of a healthy fractal variation in the way you, you live your life and work and play and eat, um, you have no problem. I, I weighed 200 pounds for about 60 years. Yeah. And, and I have no clue how many calories I really eat. I just calculated the other day what my BMR was and, you know, did, did a little bit of math on on it that I had never done before. So, uh, and, I, and I'm no fatter. I mean, a lot of people have weighed the same weight for 30 or 40 years, but they have no muscle left and they have a lot of fat and they still weigh the same. Yeah. Um, no, I, I have the same body composition that I've had, you know, since 17, 18. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, another question that you probably get asked a lot. Obviously, this isn't um, taking into account when you when you fast or when you're in intermittent fasting. But do you eat, do you eat meat with every, with every uh, every day? Do you eat meat when you're um, obviously when when you're not intermittent fasting? And isn't that dangerous? Uh, not at all dangerous. <laughs> and I do, although you know, modern meats are not up to the quality of uh, the meats uh, we had or other variety. So I eat a wide range of uh, meats. <clears throat> the only time meat can be a problem for somebody is if they have damaged uh, kidneys, and their kidneys are damaged not from eating meat, but from, from free radical damage typically uh, from uh, their you know a, a lifetime of a bad diet. Uh, they deplete the glutathione in their uh, in their kidneys and their liver. Their metabolism uh, goes away. They, they drink a lot of uh, fructose uh, in their soft drinks, so they damage their kidneys and their livers. Only people who compromise the uh, kidney function are uh, at any risk at all of uh, of eating uh, of having uh, a, uh, a harm from uh, eating uh, meat and the fats. Not a problem so so far as you balance the the, the fats that are in there with. Uh, oh, by the way, I trim most of my meat and I don't eat really fatty uh, meats. But that's just sort of my preference. It's, there's really no evidence that it's particularly uh, a problem. Yeah. Um, look at it this way: the the first study that was done on this, which is still the one that's always cited about the danger of excess protein uh, consumption. First of all, they weren't taking in the proper cofactors and nutrients. Uh, the protein wasn't in the context of fat. It was more or less like a, a dose of almost pure protein. But secondly, they, they drew their conclusion based on the fact that the, the, the kidneys had adjusted and became larger. Like there was, you know, they were, they were becoming too big in some way. Well, that actually turned out to be the way the kidney adapts when you eat a high-protein diet. It's perfectly right. healthy adaptation. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I think we've got time for just one more question, um, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll shoot to a Facebook question. I'll ask this one. Um, George asks, I kind of know the answer to this one already, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Paleo diets say we should all avoid grains, and they're poisonous, but surely these plants were available to our ancestors, and they would have eaten them in small quality, quantities. Do we really need to eliminate them completely? Well, you don't need to do anything uh, you don't want to do. Um, your health consequences will be better if you do eliminate grains because, remember, grains are the seeds of plants that are not mobile, so they have pesticides in them, the, the lectins and other toxins. Most of the most lethal uh, poisons come from uh, plants and, and snakes, of course, but um, like ricin is made from, uh, that's the favorite Soviet KGB poison for knocking off spies. It comes from the castor bean. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, mo- there's a great deal of uh, leptin, uh, uh, lectin. Uh, lectin is a protein that includes a class of proteins that includes uh, gliadins and glutens, but there are many others. Uh, and lectins are very um, they're, they're quite toxic. So here's the other point. I don't really try to mimic with any kind of authenticity what our ancestors ate. And it, there is some evidence that seeds would have been eaten, that were eaten, even roasted, you know, maybe 30,000 years ago. But it would have been the, the last choice. It would have been a poverty food very, during very difficult times before uh, you know, otherwise the, the, the calories, as we concluded, is in the animals. Um, so that that's the take. If you if you proceed on the basis of evolutionary biology and evolutionary metabolism, um, then you have a more sophisticated view of what you're trying to do. You're trying to take in nutrients that are healthful and to sort of reduce the load of toxins and uh, things that alter gene expression. And, uh, and certainly lectins completely alter gene expression. Yeah. Uh, for example, the locust that preys upon the, uh, the uh, oh, there's a tree that grows in Australia, uh, uh, tamarisk tree. It, uh, it doesn't grow flight wings, flight muscles, if it, ingest the seeds of the tamarisk tree. The tamarisk tree has developed a toxin that inter- interferes with gene expression, so the flight muscles never develop. Right. So it's evolutionary warfare. <laughs> yeah. So you just touched on then um, you, 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 know, you don't mimic the, the exact diet. Would you include any supplements into your regime, or is that out of the question too? I, I do because, let's face it, our, our foods these days are uh, far less nutritious than they would have been in ancient times. For example, there's a preference for less less uh, tasty, let's say, fruits and vegetables. Minerals, of course, make, uh, make vegetables kind of uh, bitter and uh, not as pleasant to the modern taste as uh, maybe they should be. Well, it turns out that most of our foods and our water supply have been depleted of magnesium. And the rise of depression around the world is almost surely connected to the depletion of magnesium in the in the modern diet. Right. Yes. Yeah. And 
it's also true that the antioxidants, the phytonutrients and so forth, are less dense now in modern, uh, modern foods. So I do take uh, I do take supplements. I make sure to take magnesium, and I, in fact, I just developed my own supplement in conjunction with Dr. Demopoulos, uh, who holds the patent on a form of glutathione that is absorbable. Right. And uh, uh, so, um, how, how I much, believe also, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, how much magnesium would you take a day? Well, it depends on uh, how depleted you are. Most people are quite depleted. You know, vitamin D and magnesium deficiencies are very common now. They have vitamin D tests. They also have a magnesium tests. I, I take, uh, well, of course, they eat uh, Brazil nuts, which are very rich in, I eat a lot of nuts, and they're rich in magnesium. I eat a lot of green plant foods that are rich in magnesium. I supplement with about 800 milligrams. 800 milligrams, yeah. yeah. That's what, that's what the, uh, the great uh, light, Robert Crayon recommended as well. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That in vitamin D, you know, of course, I get a lot of sun here in Utah. We have a very intense sun. And I'm sure you do in Australia too. But yeah. um, I still, on days when it's cloudy and I don't get outside much, I might take 5,000 um, units of vitamin D. Alrighty. So um, tell me, what, course, sorry? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I haven't been sick in 30 years. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it, right. really, it really works. So where, where can where can people go to um, learn more about you? Well, the easiest place is my website, but they can also Google me. I'm sort of all over Google in various uh, ways, in various very my my various careers as an economist and as a, a fitness guru and, and so forth. But my website is probably the most reliable because uh, it come, comes from me, and it's at www. ArthurDevaney.com, and Devaney is uh, just D-E-V-A-N-Y. Cool. It's a French name, actually. Devaney is really <laughs> Devon. How you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. And they've got you've got photos up there. Of you working out um, articles about training, heaps of heaps of different stuff. And um, obviously, can you get the book, The New Evolution Diet, from that website, or do you have to go straight to Amazon? It. I have a link to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or a couple of other. Booksellers. In fact, you can buy it cheaper on Amazon or Barnes and Noble than I can buy it from my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> Same with everyone. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. It's always funny that way. Go for it. Yeah. And, and what what does the future hold? What are you working on at the moment? Well, interestingly enough, I've I worked very intensely with Dr. Demopoulos on this uh, on this supplement. I'm very uh, intrigued in taking this evolutionary perspective deeper into the the, the sense of the uh, gene expression and the the whole notion of the the genome and the biome. And so I'm getting into genomics and uh, pathways that uh, alter um, the aging process uh, itself. And, of course, uh, uh, insulin IGF-1 pathway has been identified, and I talk a lot about it in the book. But I'm trying to work a little bit more on that, and then I'm, I've uh, formed a company to try to exploit my uh, my book Hollywood Economics as well. Uh, that is, certain things, ideas I developed there, I've taken and tried to patent a financial institution I- instrument for right. hedging risk in motion pictures. Right, sounds very cool. <laughs> so, what, <laughs> what what final thoughts do you, do you have, um, or you want to, you know, final things to I guess sum it up? Um, 
I just think people want to relax a little bit more, not not keeping too wrapped up in advice from different sources. All all science involving living things has, must rely at some point upon evolution and the evolutionary processes uh, and gene expression. And, and by the way, it's a very hopeful message that comes out of my, my perspective and the perspective that maybe others have as well, which is that you're not stuck with your genes. You can alter the way they express themselves. You can completely transform yourself. And I just go to the picture of Otto, Otto and Ewald that I put up on my website many years ago, back in the 90s. Two German twins, one's a runner and one, one's a weightlifter, identical twins otherwise. You cannot imagine two people who look any more different than these two do. Yeah. Same genes, different bodies, simply because of the, the way they, they live and what they do and how they alter their gene expression. So this is all called epigenomics. It's altering gene expression through things that you do and eat and and uh, how you handle your stress. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, that's a really good, good message. And I think a lot of people need to hear it living in this day and age, thinking that, you know, what they've got is what they've got and they can't do anything <laughs> about it. You know, need to inspire some health and fitness into everyone and most importantly gets the education out there so they can change. I always say with, with things like motivation, motivation just makes a, makes people do dumb things faster. So it really needs to come <laughs> back to, to education. That's well put. Yeah, so yeah, I've enjoyed the interview very much, Mark. And we, I've really enjoyed speaking to you as well. Thank you so much right. for coming on. Well, your readers are lucky to have your your show. I mean, it's really it's been fun, and yeah. you have a lot of sharp things to say. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, have a great day, and um, look forward to seeing uh, new books in the future. Okay. No worries. Well, thanks, Mark. Bye. Thanks, Art. Bye. There it is, folks. The podcast that I did back in the day with Dr. Art Devaney. Great guy. Lots of sharp things that he shared on that interview. Really enjoyed that one. So check out his book if you haven't already. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie, The Primal Diet. You can grab that one on Amazon. Now, if this is your first show that you're listening to, maybe you've been listening to us for a while, subscribe to us either on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Both of those are good. Make sure you like us on Facebook and subscribe to us on YouTube for the latest videos. A couple of releases. We've released a new Enterprise Members site just exclusively for our Enterprise Members who's training with us so they can get even more immersed in the experience of being an Enterprise. Also just recently created uh, what I call the Enterprise User Manual. And it basically assists my trainers at Enterprise taking people through getting the results. Like you'd go to buy a car, you'd buy, you'd get a user manual with the car. Same idea here. So uh, if you haven't checked out other episodes, other episodes that I recommend uh, is the one I did with Johnny Bowden. Uh, check that one out. I'm going to be re-releasing the one I did with Dr. John Martini probably next week. So if you're listening to this kind of in the future, it will already have been released. But that's a great one. It's a half hour. It's a quick one. But we talk a lot about the psychosomatic of diseases. So once I've uh, pretty much uploaded all the old episodes, looking to take this podcast show in a new and fresh direction... Love to hear your thoughts. What do you want to hear from me and the team at Enterprise? What would you like to see? What do you want to learn? What do you want us to investigate? So we've got a podcast to do, but we want to hear from you, our audience, of how we can deliver you the good stuff. So till next time, folks, train hard, supplement smart, and eat well.